This morning we turn to the book of Exodus as we continue through Exodus. We'll begin in chapter 27 and we'll read all of chapter 27 and 28. We will not be focusing today on 27. Much of the material we've covered already or will cover in coming messages. So we will read it to still understand the context, but we will be focusing on chapter 28. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Dear Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us understanding of your word that is truly your word. We thank you for a great, great blessing. A blessing to enter your house with brothers and sisters, to sit beneath your word and to listen to it. We know that this word is not something that we just read, it is something to be heard. It is something to be listened to and by that understanding in humility and obedience. We know as well that we do not come to your word seeking tidbits to find for us. We know that that happens and we know we gain great knowledge and understanding there, but that is not why we open your word. We open your word to come to you, to praise you and glorify you. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have today to do that again as well as through this portion of Scripture. We ask that you would be praised in what we do here, that we could fulfill the true purpose for which we have gathered together, the glory of your great name. We ask this in that great name, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits, and you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown you on the mountain so shall it be. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side of the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, hundred cubits long for one side. Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise for its length on the north side there shall be hanging a hundred cubits long its pillars, twenty and their bases twenty of bronze. But the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for fifty cubits, with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be fifty cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits, with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hanging shall be fifteen cubits, with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court there shall be a screen twenty cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. 
All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver, and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, and the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony. Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. We'll pause our, our reading there. And again, we're not going to look at at chapter 27, but just a few comments. We saw here these, these commands for these three things. You have the bronze altar. That was the first, the first furnishing that you would encounter when entering the court of the tabernacle. And this is where the burnt offerings and sacrifices were made. You have the, the court itself. And the court, we could see, was something of this fine-worked linen. It would have likely bore some kind of a beige tone, and so the whole structure itself would have been of fine work, but would have been, on the outside, quite plain. There would have been these clasps and these, these curtains and all of that. The gate itself, that screen, would have been a little more colorful and, and full of, of that of the beauty that the artists would have put into it. And then last, you see the oil for the lamp. And again, I'm going through this quick. Some of this we've sort of touched on already and will touch on later, so that's why we're not spending time on it here. But the oil for the lamp, it was to be of pure beaten olive oil. This would have been oil that would have burned very pure without a lot of smoke and would have been the source of light in the tent. And the reason I draw attention to that is this is likely what signals the transition now to the priesthood. So what you have here is you have this oil, and this oil was what to, was to be perpetually burned. And so this is why the priest would continue to enter into the, the tabernacle itself and into the holy place to, to tend these lamps. And so this is likely the reason why now all of a sudden you transition into the priesthood, the garments and their consecration. We will continue our reading now with chapter 28. Chapter 28 says, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twine linen skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. You shall take two onyx stones, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. 
As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sins of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold, twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod you shall make it, of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen you shall make it. It shall be square and doubled a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set in it four rows of stones. One of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. And the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, and an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold, gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. You shall put two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the settings of gold filigree and so attach it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod, as it seem above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel and the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it, with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in a garment, so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem, with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You shall weave the coat in checker work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty, and you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him 
and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and his sons when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our lives. People of God, we begin today with garments. And our first point to begin with is garments beautiful and holy. You read this section of scripture and it is very detailed all describing what we could call fashionable garments, all describing clothes. Not all of us are into clothes, and yet look at the great detail that God places in the clothing of the priests. How many verses where he's describing where the cords attach and how they are twisted, and the colors and the engraving, and which stones he wants where. This should tell us there is importance here in the arrangement of the garments and in the meaning of the garments of the priests themselves. Now, when you think of clothes, it's probably something you bring to mind, like clothes shopping. I was never a big fan of clothes shopping. You go in and you try it all on, and then if you're something like me without a lot of fashion sense, it makes it that much more difficult, and you end up standing there looking in the mirror and being like, I don't know, is this, is this right? And... And if if you're as pathetic as I might be, maybe you take a picture of yourself in the mirror and send it to someone and say, hey, does this go with this? (laughs) You see, we, we understand beauty to a degree, some of us more than others. But what we should see is that clothing is important. You convey an awful lot about yourselves in your clothes that you wear. There's meaning to it. This is an example. What's the difference between someone in street clothes walking in your backyard and around your house or someone who's wearing a bright vest that signals some kind of capacity and you don't necessarily question that one who has a construction vest or some kind of vest to signal they're with the water company or whatever and they go walking through yards and and no one cares and yet if it's just someone walking around your house who, who isn't wearing that one piece of clothing... Well, then we might even call someone. We might call the police and say, what's going on? You see, clothing matters. Clothing also conveys something about ourselves. Do we convey a sense of modesty? And if we aren't dressed modestly, what does that mean? What does that tell about us? Do we try to portray ourselves as somewhat athletic and wear athletic clothing, or as a hunter, or as a farmer, or as a businessman, what, what do we dress like? What do we convey? Clothing tells a lot about something. Now, of course, this text is not about clothing in general. It has a very specific purpose. But we begin with that understanding clothes matter. And I hope we see that today. In our weakness, we might read this text and think this is a drive-through text. Just drive through it. I mean, that's, there's, there's a lot of detail, but it's not that significant. That's what we might think. We just drive right on through it, pass it by. But that's not the case. There's a simple yet profound truth being conveyed in the garments of the priests. And that's why it's in God's Word. That's why it is holy and set apart and inerrant. That's why we have it before us. It conveys something. What it conveys is the grandeur, the majesty, the glory of the office, even the intent and the use 
of the office itself, what they do as the priesthood. The garments were meant to signify and show that. We see as well that the garments of the the priests are for our very comfort. We are comforted by our priest's clothes. And that's our theme for today. We are comforted by our priest's clothes. We'll unpack that as we go. But I want to have that in our mind, that these clothes are in fact a comfort to, to, to us. And so we see a dress code in God's abode, and this dress code matters. We see everything from a fashion statement to words of modesty. The passage begins in the first few verses, and it gives a sort of table of contents of all that the artisans are to make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. Verse 5 contains a list of the materials that are going to be used. Gold, gold, blue, purple, scarlet linen. You'll notice that the materials used in the priest's clothing themselves were the same materials used in the construction of the tabernacle. The two are linked. They go together. Just as the tabernacle is this set-apart place of worship, just as the tabernacle is God's very abode, the priests clothing themselves convey that. This is the one who enters God's abode. He's the one who has access. He's the one who can enter, but he needs to be dressed like this, and we need to see that. If he were to just enter without this, that would be disrespectful. He is to be dressed in this manner to convey all of these reasons. First, what do we see? What do we see? What what is the the garment showing? Look at verse 2. God tells Moses, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you have three elements there. They're holy, they're glorious, and they're beautiful. Well, why holy? Holy because they were set apart and were not for everyday use. These clothes showed the high priest's role. It showed that he was set apart and he alone was. So they were holy in that sense of set apart. But they were also to signify something of moral uprightness and all that they conveyed. And so they were holy in that sense as well. Not that the garments themselves possessed inherent moral righteousness, but they were conveying that about the priests. So it was set apart, this man was set apart for this purpose, and the garments themselves conveyed his, his office, conveyed even a sense of moral uprightness in their beauty and purity. So they were holy, but they were also glorious. These words come, and we hear then that God specifically wants his priests dressed gloriously. Glory. The original meaning of that term glory is the word weightiness. Respect. So these priests were to be dressed in a weighty way, conveying that sense that there was a lot going on here. There was glory here. That's what the garments were to show. Something like the, the glory we might convey to a specific office. You have a policeman or a fireman or a soldier, and they're arrayed in their glorious vestments, their, their uniforms, their dress uniforms, there's a certain amount of weight they have. There's a certain amount of respect you afford to them because of what they do. And they're dressed in that office, that, that vestment conveying the meaning of their office. And so we convey to them in their words, weight, glory, and respect. And that's exactly the way God would have his priests arrayed, and specifically his high priest, holy, glorious, But then notice the last part of that, beautiful. Verse 3 even shows it was the most skilled who were to make these garments. 
I would encourage you to, in your free time, look up what scholars have, have possibly rendered as the clothing and the tabernacle itself, what these may have looked like. Not because that's what they would have, but you gain an idea. As you read all of this, you might have some kind of strange thing, and you'd be like, how does this all work? How do these garments all work together? I'm reading this, and it's this many cubits long. What, what's he wearing? And so if you could look up something of a possible rendering, you would see that these garments were truly quite beautiful. The high priest was likely the most beautifully arrayed man in the entire kingdom. And there was a point to that. He had that, that glorious golden work, all of these expensive yarns and linens and all of these things, and so he was quite beautiful. And that's important. You know, you might think to yourself, now why weren't the priests arrayed in a simple, just plain white robe? Just a plain white robe to show that they were, they were pure, they were spotless. Here they come and they come in humility, right? They should, it should be plain, it shouldn't be this grand. But you see, that's not how God views the priesthood. He views the priesthood and the high priest as something quite beautiful. And so he would have his high priest dressed beautifully. Just as we might, might dress ourselves when we go to an important place or a wedding and we put on our best, we dress ourselves. We do that here every week. We dress up. We show that respect. Well, as the high priest was entering the presence of God, he did so wearing these vestments of office and beauty. And he was dressed to convey that weight and God then views the office as beautiful, the priests as beautiful. That is important. He is calling the people to himself. He has set up this office. And he wants it to be holy, glorious, beautiful. And that's the way we should see it. That's what it is. And then as we continue on, we see sort of the elements of the garments. We see the ephod, which was something like a vest was something that would have had shoulder pads and, th and something like that and would have extended down to the waist. And you, know, you can view something like a vest-type garment that covered the upper body. But then we see these marks of intercession placed on this. Verse 9 explains that all the tribe's names were engraved on the two stones set on the shoulder pieces. We also see later in verses 15 to 27 that the names of Israel were put on the breastpiece set in 12 stones. And so the priests literally bore the names of the tribes. He was their representative. So there were the six names here and the six names here. And then there was on his own, his own ephod, that vest piece was a breastplate. But it wasn't as we would think of like a knight's breastplate. It was a golden work that, that set here. And then in that were all these precious stones. And engraved in each of those was a name of the tribes of Israel. The high priest was bearing the people to God, entering into and being their intercessor. And we've come before many different aspects of the temple that show that the high priest was the intercessor. He brought the people to God, and it says in our text, so that the Lord would remember them. So the idea here is that through the priest entering and doing his service, he is bringing to remembrance to the Lord the Lord's people. It's the remembrance of the Lord that actually signaled the beginning of the Exodus itself. The Lord remembered them. And he heard their prayers while the priests, every time he would enter, would convey that same thing. He is bringing the people to God. He is that set-apart representative bringing the Lord's people to himself. 
And so what we see is that the priest was first and foremost their representative. We see the high priest did not simply make sacrifice. More important than even the sacrifices he would do is that the priest bore the needs of the people. Before anything else, the priest was the bearer of the people's burdens, the representative and the bearer of their needs. And it was through that aspect of his office that he would sacrifice, that he would enter into the holy place of God. That was his role and his purpose. We also see that in the breast piece of judgment, there was these things, these Urim and Thummim. The Urim and Thummim were the means for the people to seek out God's will. We don't know much about these things. They, some people think they were some kind of lot-like lot device where they, where they dice that was rolled that conveyed some sort of answer. These are speculative. We don't know exactly what they were, but they were some sort of device to be able to ask a question of the Lord and receive some kind of answer. How specific could it get? We don't know. We do know in Scripture that, that Joshua, that David, used these coming to the high priest to discern, to discern do we go to battle? Something very important. We go to battle and do this. And so the high priest, even in his own vestments, had the means by which to receive the answers of God. And though we might not want to press this too much, I think it, it's sad that we actually see the kings use these so infrequently. These things were at their disposal if they could go to the high priest and seek out the counsel of God. The fact that they aren't used more is a sad reality. You do see them used, but not that frequently. And yet, the priests then had the means to seek out God's will. And so you see, look at all the, the power, the glory of what he did. Look at the beauty and holiness of these garments. But that is not as all that they conveyed. Our second point, these garments were deadly dangerous. You know, God's dress code mattered. Today, dress codes don't really matter even when they say they do. It's like, oh, it's a, you got to wear a coat to get into this restaurant. Most restaurants aren't like that. We, we don't think as highly of dress anymore, but this dress code mattered. We see, as beautiful as these garments were, they conveyed a sense of danger. They conveyed a sense of reverence and honor to the Lord in entering his presence. So we see these details. Verses 31 to 35 describe the priest's robe. And on its hem, you see pomegranates and bells of gold. They were alternated between a pomegranate and a bell, and that would surround the hem of his robe itself. And the text says, It shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out, so that he does not die, is what the text says. So that he does not die. Well, what's, what's this about? Well, pomegranates were widely known as a symbol of abundance and of beauty. It was used all over in Solomon's temple. So we can see that same sense. It's conveying that abundant beauty to the priestly office. But the bells are what are more in, in context here, what's being talked about. I wonder if you've heard it said by others that, did you know the priests carried a bell with them or bells on them so that if the people outside heard it stop jingling, they knew something happened to the high priest? You may have, have heard that. Well, that's not what the text says here. It's not that the people outside could like listen against the tent flap and say, uh-oh, I don't hear any bells. Better, better move so I hear these bells. That's, that's not exactly what was going on, though they may have informed the people about that. This was to the Lord. This was a mark of respect. The rabbis talked about this in the sense of always knocking before entering, and I think they're right. 
You see, what this conveys is the same thing you experience when you enter someone's house. Perhaps it's a close friend or an extended family member. You know them well enough to open the door and not have them come to it. But what do all of us, and if we're acting in some kind of respect, immediately do? You enter and you say, hello? Anyone home? You signal your presence. It's not your house. You're entering someone else's place. And though you've received the invitation, the party's at X time, it's 4 o'clock, you've shown up to your uncle and aunt's house, you, you can enter in that way, you're expected. The, the tabernacle was open, this was expected, yet you signaled your presence. Why? Because you respected and you honored the Lord. And so the bells were signaling that. Here's the approach. This tent was that little, as we talked about last time we looked at it, a little model of heaven itself. Just picture it in your minds as a priest would enter. There would be a lamp burning, and the light of the lamp would be cast on glittering precious metals, and the showbread and the altar of incense. And so there would be this incense in there, there would be this gold and the reflected light, and the light would illumine many different types of beautiful curtains. And on the curtains there would be the work of the cherubim. So you're entering into this place, which is heaven itself, or the model of heaven itself. You entered with respect. You entered showing the honor of the place. And that's what the high priest did. That's why there were these bells to signal it, that they wouldn't die. And why? You know, we can boil it down and be like, well, isn't it, is it that crazy that, that the priest could die if he didn't have bells on his hem? And we could make it sound like that. But the point is, it's not that, no, that God's this vindictive God. It's that if you were to enter this place, you honored this God and you honored his dress code. And the dress code and all the parts of it showed something. It showed that this was a holy place, a glorious place, a beautiful place, but also a dangerous place. So the priest would walk in with those bells, signaling his coming to the Lord. Continuing on, verse 36 says, You shall make that plate that would go on their, their chest of pure gold and grave on it, or on the turban, I should say, and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet holy to the Lord. This was placed on the front of that turban. There was some kind of headpiece, and on this headpiece was this golden plate that read holy to the Lord. Verse 38 is somewhat difficult to interpret. Look at verse 38. It says, It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So this verse is difficult to interpret. Was it saying holy to the Lord? Yes, that means set apart. But, but what is this getting at? This likely indicated that the, the priest was indeed set apart for this purpose, but also that even the contamination of sin would be on him from the people. And this inscription would protect him as he entered and declared to God these requests as he did his work. And so it, in essence, could be that that phrase and that inscription, holy to the Lord, was something to protect him and the people. That though there was contamination, that he entered and yet he was, he was himself engraved, holy to the Lord. That he could enter and do his duty, do his ministry. And so his turban even read that he was set apart. Now, here I want to return to our theme, okay? I start with, well, why does this comfort us? This comforts us because all these things 
we are protected by. All this danger we don't undergo, and yet we have access to God. Look at the last dangerous element, their linen undergarments in verses 42 to 43. These undergarments were to cover their naked flesh when they came near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. The garments protected and covered covered their nakedness and shame. When our first parents sinned, what was the first reality and knowledge of their sin? That they were naked and they were ashamed. And so nakedness became that mark of sin and shame. That is one of the reasons we are to dress modestly. That is one of the reasons that we are to be covered. We were created, yes, without these garments, we were created perfectly good and right, and yet we have shame now in sin. And so when the priests would enter the presence, they covered what was the mark of their shame. Lest again they died. They entered into the holy place, their shame needed to be covered. And so we are comforted by our priest's clothes. Look what they did. Look at this individual, bearing all the inscriptions of, as you should see it, your names. You are part of those tribes, and he's bearing your tribe's name, your name. He's entering on your behalf to make sacrifices of atonement for you. He's entering the presence of God so that God remembers you. What a great comfort, even amidst the dangerous elements of it. But even that was a comfort because you weren't called to do this. You didn't need bells on the hems of your robes. You didn't need to make sure you entered wearing all of these engravings and these vestments. The one that God set apart, he did. He was our comfort. Here's the point. These garments highlight the duty, the need, the glory and beauty of what the priest represents. They also are there to protect the priest from the holiness of God. And so we are comforted in what they do. And with that, we turn to our final point, clothed in Christ. Clothed in Christ. You can look at all the aspects of what the priest's clothes did. Holiness. Priest's clothes were to show you that these guys were holy. They were set apart. Well, that was because they were standing in the office of what Christ would fulfill. And so Christ was the one being depicted. The priest needed to be holy and set apart because they prefigured Christ who was indeed the one holy and set apart for this purpose. Christ is holy, the one who would come, the true high priest. And so these priests were called holy. Glorious, the priests were the significant figures, so they were awarded and given that amount of weight and glory. Yet this is only because they filled the role of Christ, that Christ would fulfill and bring to perfection. Christ was necessary to fulfill it. The priest's clothes also conveyed beauty, and this is... This is, to borrow the word again, the beauty of this text. Priest's garments reflect the beauty of their office, and we need to stop and consider that. God called the best tailors, the best clothes makers to make these clothes so that they would be beautiful. His priests were beautiful because his son is beautiful. On Good Friday, we looked at Isaiah where it talked about how there was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. That's true. The outward vision of Christ, the outward manifestation of Jesus' flesh was not something that was this divinely beautiful thing. And yet, when Christ was baptized, what was heard? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
Before Christ walked the earth, there was never a man or a woman that fulfilled that. There was no one who was beautiful to the Lord in what he did, who he was, not just what he represented. There are many figures before Christ that could be termed as beautiful to the Lord. But what is meant is that they were faithful, that they repented of their sin, that they looked to another. And so, yes, in that way they could be. But Christ, the true high priest, was fully and only beautiful to God. So where do we go from here? The deadly and the dangerous fell on Jesus because he was not just the high priest, but the sacrifice as well. And so we see both elements here of the clothing. We see the beauty and glory and holiness of the clothes. And then in the dangerous and deadly elements, we see that it fell upon Christ himself, that these priests were spared, even though they were contaminated, these priests were spared because they were still being represented by their true high priest. He bore that burden as well, but... What about today? Where do we go today? The priesthood is gone. We don't wear these clothes. Aaron and his sons were the means to connect the people to God. We must seek the same in Christ. So I want to make two applications today. And the first, what I think is the best way to make an application is to make no application. If we take application to mean do this and do that, dress this way and fill this, and that's, that's not it. That's not the application of this text. Why? Because the theme of this text that we're taking today is the comfort we have in the priest and his garments. This text is all about the fact that you do nothing. This text is all about the fact that there is someone else who does this for you. We can take in a general manner from this text that we are called to be holy. Yes, we can. But we're not the ones who go in to make atonement. And we're not the ones who bear the sins of the people. That was the priests. And that was truly Christ. So we need to be comforted in our high priest's garments. We are not in danger. We have none of that danger because Christ bore it. He is our comfort. We are truly on the sidelines. We can then look at this and basically respond in a gaze of wonder and awe at our high priest. That's first the application to make. Look what Christ is. Even in all these garments and linens and graven plates, Christ comes out and the gospel comes out. And so the first application to make is that we're not meant to take this and say, what do I need to do? We don't need to do anything because the priest did. At most, what we are called to do is believe, trust him, to trust God. So that's the first application, that, that application of no application. But here's the second, the application to glory in your new garments. You know, as much as I dislike shopping for clothes, wow, they can make you feel good, can't they? Maybe we don't all appreciate this as much, but you get those new clothes that you think you just look good in, and others tell you, wow, you look so good, and, and then we walk around and you kind of puff up your chest, it's like, yes, I new clothes, you see this, and you look, you feel so good about yourself. Now, there are sins involved in there, we're casting those aside for a second, and just dealing with that feeling that raiment can give you. 
The new clothes that you wear, and it just, it gives you confidence. I'm, I'm dressed well, and it's new. Now that fades very quickly, too. But we feel that. So imagine this. What you can feel like being arrayed in that way. We turn to Galatians 3.27 that says this. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That word put on Christ is the word wear. We wear Christ in faith. You know what this means? These high priests and their garments, the best dressed men in Israel, maybe, maybe you could put them next to the king, but I don't know. This, this high priest was the best dressed man, the most regal, and glorious, and holy. And yet he doesn't light a candle next to who Christ is. So we're not arrayed like the high priest of the Old Testament. We're wearing Christ himself, the very imagery of beauty and holiness and glory we've put on in faith. As glorious as we feel with new clothes, how much more glorious is it to know that we wear the beauty and holiness of Christ himself? That can pass us by. It could just go like whiz right over our heads if we don't catch it, if we don't think of it. This means when you're bothered for your sin, you realize, I don't wear that raiment. I don't wear the vestments of sin. I'm clothed better than the high priest of Israel. I'm clothed in Christ himself. The inscriptions written holy to the Lord is written on me. And though all of the articles don't correspond in the same sense, we're not the intercessor. We don't bear the names of all God's people, but we put him on. That's what we see. That is what's so beautiful. Though we aren't the ones to achieve it, we wear it. Though we aren't the ones to achieve it, we wear it. This is why we are comforted by our priest's clothes. We are comforted by what he has been called to do, what he does. And when you think back to Exodus chapter 28, don't think that was the long chapter of all the clothes. Think of this. All that God was conveying in the glory and beauty, this text is conveyed to, literally to us. We wear Christ in faith. In that great truth, let's bow before him and praise his name. Father in heaven, we turn to you and we give you praise and glory and honor. We give to you praise, glory, and honor at what we see here. You set up a priesthood and called it beautiful and glorious and holy, and you gave them tasks to do that were to prefigure what you would yourself do. And then you came and fulfilled it in a, in a better way, the perfect way, and yet our, our passage through Scripture doesn't end there. It continues into the New Testament where we learn that we are so arrayed. That we are so arrayed because we are in Christ. That we are thus gloriously dressed and beautiful to you. Lord, we long for the day when that reality is, is, is true of us in our own bodies, in our own flesh, where we don't bear marks of sin anymore. We know in you we don't. We long for those days, but help us to then... Look to this text and to make the application that it isn't us. That it isn't us to achieve it. And may we apply this text as well by praising you. May we apply this text the very same way we would when we put on our new clothes. 
and we sense the beauty of them. We sense the even the, the glory that it conveys to us. And our worldly garments do this in very imperfect, often even sinful ways, but our, our heavenly garments do this truly. We stand so arrayed and we praise your glorious name. Amen.